welcome back to the Millennial Ag Podcast, where agriculture is always on tap and no topic is off limits. Thanks for joining us today, your hosts, Catherine Lotzbeach and Valine Cothorn. This week's episode is brought to you by Mystic Lubricants. For a look at their full range of top quality products, visit mysticlubes.com. That is M-Y-S-T-I-K-L-U-B-E-S.com. Listeners, thank you for tuning into this week's episode. We are um, in the last week of October, which just is absolutely mind-blowing to me. Um, It seems like I was just starting to enjoy summer, but I am enjoying the cool cool weather as well. But um, this week, as we're in the last week of October, we're heading into elections. So my good friend Tanner Beamer um, has joined us from NCBA to kind of walk us through some of the election cycles um, on a national scale since he he is very versed in the subject. So before we get any further, thank you, Tanner, for joining us. And would you tell listeners a little bit about yourself? You bet. Thanks, Valine. Well, uh, my name is Tanner. I am the Senior Director of Government Affairs at the National Cattlemen's Beef Association's Center for Public Policy in Washington, D.C. I've been here for uh, about five and a half years now working on a host of different policy issues from Western federal lands and grazing issues and now cattle markets issues. And I most recently just inherited our appropriations portfolio as well. Uh, So me and and our whole team here in Washington, D.C., uh, there's about uh, nine of us that are full-time lobbyists, and we are uh, assisted by a bunch of other subject matter experts that are a lot smarter than we are uh, and do a really good job on behalf of the industry. Uh, and part of what my job entails, of course, is meeting with different members of Congress. And before we uh, build those relationships with existing members of Congress, we also uh, look at candidates that are running for office and see which ones out there who are running to replace retiring members or maybe challenging existing members um, are going to be allies of the U.S. cattle industry. And one of the ways that we engage with that is through our political action committee or our NCBA PAC. Uh, Through the contributions made by NCBA members all across the country, we are able to support those political candidates that support the U.S. cattle industry. And uh, as one of the lobbyists on staff, I uh, advised our PAC committee and I I participate in the process of deciding where we give out that support and I also kind of am one of a few folks in our office that have previous campaign experience so when it comes time to midterms or uh, general elections we uh, we tend to get pretty busy around here forecasting and running models and listening to all the experts that uh, are much better data crunchers than we are so that's a little uh, background into me and what I've been up to the past couple months. (laughs) Well, awesome. And we're so excited to have you. I think you're the perfect person and the most animated person to talk about uh, politics with, because I think it sometimes can get a little dry or in the weeds, especially when you're listening to debate after debate, or you're trying to muddle through all the information. What, um, what elections do you find important coming up in the general um, in November? And kind of how did you come to that conclusion? So, you know, I think that, you know, when we when we look at this midterm election, there's a couple things that we we look at just across the board, right? And that is which party is going to control the House and which party is going to control the Senate. Democrats currently control the House by the slimmest of margins. I think only about five seats at this point after some retirements and some special elections over the last two years. And then looking at the Senate, it's a 50-50 dead even split, but Democrats have 
a de facto control over the Senate because the vice president uh, breaks all the ties. She, of course, is a Democrat. So they have a functional uh, majority in the Senate as well. So when we look at at these midterm elections, there's a couple things that we look at. So here in inside the greater Washington, D.C. area, which includes parts of Southern Maryland and Northern Virginia, uh, we we look at the Virginia gubernatorial elections because that always happens the year after a presidential election. The, the new president uh, has had a year to demonstrate to the American people uh, whether or not they're going to follow through on campaign promises, whether what their agenda is going to look like, and it gives Americans an idea of what the next three years are going to look like under that administration. Virginia is a very purple state, uh, and I, you know, used to live in Idaho, and I voted in Idaho. I was actually in Valine's mom's uh, state senate district when I lived there, <laughs> um, and so uh, when I, when we look at Virginia, right, it's purple, purple state. Uh, it's it can go either way. It does oftentimes in these statewide elections. Um, and we kind of look at that as a test of what the midterms are going to look like. So obviously you go back to 2020, Joe Biden gets elected. He has all of 2021 to uh, establish a, uh, a cabinet and roll out a pretty aggressive legislative agenda. And then you get to 2021 and you see the, the Virginia gubernatorial election and they actually elected for the first time in a long time, a Republican governor in Glenn Youngkin. Uh, that was kind of a, a, our first sign that, hey, we might see uh, control of at least the House of Representatives start to go towards uh, Republicans. And so as we've kind of gone through that, we've seen a, a bunch of different data points that factor in. So when we look at some of these information and those data points, right, we look at the generic ballot, which is basically a poll that says, hey, American people, do you prefer Republicans or Democrats to be in control of the legislative branch? And on that generic ballot, as of this morning, Republicans hold about a three to five point advantage on that generic ballot. We also look at the president's approval ratings uh, because that plays a significant role in how the midterms shake out. Uh, President Biden has some abysmally low approval ratings. In fact, uh, I believe that only Donald Trump uh, has ever had a lower approval ratings in, in history. He's about, as of right now, about a 41.6% approval rating and a 53.3% disapproval rating. Um, and for context, in the last several midterm elections, only in 1978 and 2002 did the president's party maintain their majority in Congress in the House of Representatives or expand upon that majority. But never in U.S. history has a has a president with as low of approval ratings as Joe Biden has ever has that party picked up seats in the House of Representatives. So things are looking pretty good for Republicans right now. They've had a little bit of a hiccup with the Supreme Court's decision on reproductive rights. Uh, that, of course, did uh, give a temporary bump to uh, Democrats. And in some districts, that will uh, give some of those vulnerable Democrats a the push that they need to get over the finish line. Uh, in suburban and exurban districts in particular, those are going to be where uh, you're going to see some, some good Democratic holds or maybe even a Democratic pickup here and there. But what is uh, the issue that Americans are most concerned about right now is inflation in the economy. And when those two issues are tied together as one, that is the number one issue on the minds of Americans, according to polls, by a good five point spread, which is which is huge in terms of polling. Behind that comes uh, abortion. Behind that comes crime. And on two of those three, 
namely inflation and economy and crime, voters have indicated that they prefer Republican uh, strategies, Republican agendas to address those issues. So I'm, I, in terms of the, the whole of totality when it comes to the House of Representatives, I am anticipating the Republicans will, will take back the majority uh, for the first time since 2017 or 2018, I guess. Um, and I do believe that they will pick up between 15 to 20 seats conservatively. Uh, if the polling keeps going their way uh, over the last couple of weeks, they've slowly picked up, uh, gained some momentum. If that trend continues, I think you could see as many as 30 to 35 seats uh, in, in terms of a Republican majority. Wow, that's pretty significant. Yeah. <laughs> so before we dive into details and issues themselves, Tanner, something that I've heard out in the outer space, <laughs> um, is that given the way that our country is divided, the way that politics are going right now, we are only going to see one-term presidents for the next several presidential elections. Is that something that you see too? You know, that's very interesting. And I think that kind of plays in a little bit to my math on the, on the House of Representatives. So for whatever reason in the United States, you know, Congress has one of the lowest approval ratings as an institution, right? I think I haven't checked the numbers recently, but the last time I checked, I think Congress had a 13% approval rating. And that's not because people dislike their congressman. It's because they dislike all the other 434 other ones in there. Um, and so, uh, you know, because of that, incumbency does give you a little bit of an advantage, right? You, you have more name identification. People are more familiar with you. And that's one of the reasons I think that you're, you could see such a substantial Republican pickup in the House of Representatives. There are, um, there are currently, I want to say, actually, I can look at my, my notes here really quick because I wrote this number down thinking it might be worth talking about. There are 30, 31 Democrats in the House of Representatives that are not coming back to Congress, which means they're leaving an open seat behind them. Uh, in addition to that, on the Republican side, there are 17 uh, retiring members of Congress. So just by nature of the incumbency advantage, I think you, you start to see Republicans in a much more advantageous place. On the flip side, and I didn't really talk about this in my last answer, in the Senate, you only have one retiring senator. That's Patrick Leahy from Vermont, who's the longest serving senator in the body right now. And then you have uh, five senators that are saying that they are not going to seek re-election. They're retiring. And there are rumors floating around Washington, D.C. that aren't so much rumors as much as it just hasn't been officially announced yet. Senator Ben Sass from Nebraska is largely expected to resign from Congress. Uh, he was uh, in academia before he came to Congress. Uh, it's rumored that he's going to go back to academia if he were to resign and leave the Senate. But that's that's six, six power of incumbency seats in the Senate, uh, which does definitely favor Democrats in that situation. With respect to the presidency, you know, I, I do think that there is some potential for that to be the case. But a lot of that, I think, has to do with just America's, Americans' trust in uh, the types of candidates that we're putting forward, right? Donald Trump has his own issues. I don't want to get into that today. But Joe Biden, you know, he does represent uh, for the majority of his career in Washington, D.C., a somewhat moderate Democrat, right? He comes from a very uh, manufacturing center, blue collar part of the country, right? Where uh, he was a union Democrat when he first came to first came to Washington, D.C. Now, his presidency has played out much differently, and it's been very, very progressive in a lot of senses. 
Um, but I think Americans are, are, are more so curious about the ability to do the job, right? Joe Biden is the oldest president we've ever elected. Uh, and that uh, has caused some concern among a lot of the pundits. It definitely causes concern with a lot of the voting bases, I think. Uh, and as a result of that, I think you might start to see a little bit of, of questioning about whether or not he's the right fit. Um, I think he was an ideal candidate for the Democrats from a strategic perspective to take on Donald Trump. And obviously that panned out successfully for them. I don't know if he does the same thing if the Republicans can nominate somebody younger, somebody a little bit more measured, the more traditional politician that is going to resonate well with independent voters and the more moderate wing of the Republican Party, um, even if it is not a moderate, right? I'm thinking of like Ron DeSantis off the top of my head because I think of the field, he's probably polling uh, the highest right now, but we are a long ways out from the next presidential election. But even a DeSantis, right? He's, he's quite a bit younger. He's pretty brash. And so he'll appeal to that uh, more conservative wing of the party, but he also has pragmatic results, right? His, his state of Florida from an economic perspective is flourishing. He's handled crises and catastrophes well, looking at, at Hurricane Ian, right? If, if you do see a, a candidate that they can put up, I think that there is a universe where that person can enjoy widespread support and cruise to a second term. Um, but for the time being, you know, a lot of it has to do with candidate quality. I mean, if you look back at the 2020 election cycle, um, Donald Trump and Joe Biden, I think, were between the two of them combined, represented the first choice for 20 percent of Americans, which means mm -hmm. that 80 percent of voters they were not either one of their first choice and they were choosing ostensibly and maybe it's not the best term but the lesser of two evils anyway with that with that rant i will i will conclude that thought because i can go on for a long time on this one i think i think you could potentially see uh, a couple more presidential cycles of party flipping back and forth but even if americans don't necessarily uh, agree or align with someone's political ideology if they feel they can trust the candidate and the candidate is able to do the job, I think you could start to see a little bit more of the traditional, you know, two-term holdout and then an open election after eight years. So since, since we're in agriculture, how does this affect ag in general? How does this specifically affect the beef industry and why, why do you have the position you have essentially? Well, you know, I think, it, it is very interesting for all of us in agriculture. I was in San Antonio late last week um, at a meeting where I spoke on a panel with nine other agriculture lobbyists in Washington, D.C. about the 2023 Farm Bill, which we are going to begin negotiations on in earnest once the 118th Congress gets sworn in. So if you let's just you know, the, the Senate, I think, is more of a toss up now than it has been. If you would have asked me three weeks ago, I would have said that Democrats will probably maintain control of the Senate and maybe pick up a seat or two. Uh, today, I don't know if I quite feel that that same way anymore. You've seen some surging and polling in places like Nevada with Adam Laxalt over Kathy Cortez Masto. Uh, she is a strong ally of, of the cattle industry and of agriculture. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, you know, the, the reality is that, you know, Nevada is a pretty conservative state outside of two counties where the population centers are pretty big. Uh, and kind of like what happened in Virginia's gubernatorial race last year, you could see something similar happen in Nevada. Um, uh, but all that to say, you know, when we look at the House, uh, if we go into a 2023 farm bill, let's pretend for a moment that Democrats keep the Senate and they keep the House of Representatives. I think the 2023 farm bill will look very different than any other that we've seen in the past several iterations of this piece of legislation. You know, it has to be reviewed by Congress every five years. 
And if there's total democratic control, I think you'll see a lot more climate policy get uh, tucked away, not just in the conservation title, but throughout all uh, of, of the, the issue areas that the farm bill covers. And then in addition to that too, I think you'll see some pretty historic uh, plus ups in, in SNAP, the, the nutrition title, right? Because uh, if I'm a Democrat from a suburban or, or an urban area, uh, I'm not so much looking at the farm programs or the other titles of the farm bill outside the nutrition title. It's, it's by far and away the largest percentage of the farm bill in terms of total dollars allocated and authorized, um, but you absolutely cannot pass a farm bill uh, without urban voter, urban votes in Congress. And so that's why the marriage of SNAP and farm programs has worked for so long. Um, going into what we expect to be a Republican Congress, I think that you will see a little bit of a backstop get put onto uh, some of those. I think everybody's in favor of conservation. Everybody's in favor of, of climate, um, with the exception of like the extreme wings of either party. I don't care which, which party we're talking about. Everybody thinks that conservation is a good thing. Um, on the Republican side of the dais, which is where we in this conversation would tend to more closely align, we think that that needs to be voluntary and incentives based programs like uh, the uh, environmental quality insurance program or equip uh, things like uh, CSP CRP right things that voluntarily can be enrolled in basically putting farmers and ranchers in the driver's seat to make whatever decisions are best for their operation that have net benefits for the wildlife, for their communities, for the ecosystems, and for the environment as well. No, that's, I think it's very fascinating. And I like that you bring the, the voluntary programs up, you know, after sitting in on a local, you know, very similar committee for choosing that, it, it brings a whole nother perspective to compliance and, and regulatory that, that can work. Um, which races specifically, you've mentioned a few of them, but which races specifically are you guys either involved with in the pack or you're watching very, very closely to see what, what happens? You know, I couldn't tell you the exact number of candidates that we have supported through our pack, um, but I know it's north of 150, somewhere in that ballpark. Um, and we, 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 our only standard for participation in a campaign is, is this someone we can work with to protect US cattle farmers and ranchers? Um, and that means that we give to candidates on both sides of the aisle. It means that we will donate to primary candidates in some cases. Um, and it means that uh, we, we, we don't take into consideration anything other than that. Um, however, if, if we're looking at just generally, you know, how, uh, a, a Republican Congress could be advantageous. You know, we're not just looking at things like climate, although in this presidential administration, climate is king, right? We, we, we look through the lens of climate when we talk about everything. But in some of these markets issues that have arisen over the past couple of years, right? You've seen uh, some, some bipartisan support for some issues that, you know, our members and NCBA has said it's not the right approach to, to doing business. But you've also seen some, some pretty aggressive moves come out of USDA even recently uh, with some rulemakings that they put out under the Packers and Stockyards Act that we, we are saying, hold on, tap the brakes, let's, let's unpack this issue a little bit more and try and understand what you're trying to get at because your proposed solution to a problem you say exists might be a little heavy-handed and it might have unintended consequences. And so uh, in terms of, of looking at some of these races where, you know, I don't know that there's necessarily one that we're watching specifically in terms of outcome, uh, I think we are looking at what, where's that house going to go? 
I think we've laid a pretty good case that Republicans are going to take back the House of Representatives. But the margin by which they take it back is very interesting to us because if you have a wide Republican majority, you know, let's say we have another 2010 quote unquote Tea Party wave where we pick up, you know, 50 plus seats or something like that in the House. Well, now we have almost a supermajority in the House of Representatives. And, you know, if you look at the type of candidate that won Republican primaries across the country, uh, a lot of them are kind of in the same vein of, of Donald Trump, right? They're, they're America first. They are, you know, very conservative. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with that. But some of our, our biggest opponents when it comes to the farm bill, by way of example, is the House Freedom Caucus, right? They uh, very typically tend to vote no on the farm bill. And with a Republican margin of victory in the midterms of 50 seats or more, that is a, that's a pretty big chunk of people coming in on that wave that are going to fall into that, uh, that farther right end of the spectrum. I don't want to say far right, but right of center or right of center right uh, group of candidates where there's going to be a lot of education uh, necessary on behalf of agriculture to show them what the return on investment is from a farm bill program and what the benefits of supporting agriculture are going to be. Um, so through that vein, I think those are kind of, that's kind of what we're looking at, right, is who, who controls the levers from a party perspective and then what wing of the party is going to be driving the conversation regardless of who wins the majority or holds the majority. Um, in terms of on election night, the races I'm going to be watching more closely to get a sense of what that margin of victory is going to be for either side, and whether or not Republicans are going to take back the majority or Dems are going to hold it. Um, I would say that uh, the Iowa third district, uh, Cindy Axney is a Democrat from Iowa who currently holds that seat. Uh, she came in on the 2018 blue wave. So she's been in Congress two terms. Uh, but after redistricting, her district is uh, an R plus three district. Uh, and she is in, in big danger uh, of losing that seat. Uh, Zach Nunn uh, is a state senator in Iowa challenging her. Uh, he's currently up in the polling right now. I think that's a, a seat to watch. If he wins by uh, two or three points, I think that that is a, a very good sign. That's a very suburban district with uh, a little bit of rural components to it, um, but it's mostly suburban Des Moines. And again, suburban voters are the ones who really make the decisions in this country. It's just kind of uh, a reality of where we're at with the way that maps are drawn and the way that our demographics work in this country. And if he can win by upwards of three to five points, I think that that's a good sign that Republicans are going to get a lot of seats. I'm also looking at the Virginia 7th. Uh, that's a seat currently held by a Democrat, Abby Spanberger, uh, the North Carolina 13th, which is an open seat. Um, you've got uh, two state legislators running against each other, uh, a Republican and a Democrat. That's an R plus two district, but the polling is about dead even right at this point. Um, again, the, the margin by which one candidate can win over the other will be very uh, telling looking at the rest of the races. And then uh, on the Ag Committee, right, you've got Don Bacon in the Nebraska second district. He's a, a very good member of the Ag Committee. Uh, the Cook Partisan Voting Index has his district as an even not an R plus one, not a D plus one, it is even. Uh, and he's uh, currently running against uh, Tony Vargas, who's a, a pretty uh, strong Democrat. That's the Omaha suburbs. Again, suburbs and exurbs kind of playing uh, the key role in some of these determinations and these uh, toss-up seats. 
And then in uh, on the Democratic side of the ledger on the Ag Committee, uh, the Minnesota second, uh, Angie Craig uh, going up against, I think it's Troy Kistner, maybe. Um, he uh, is, is a Republican that's polling really well in that D plus one district. Uh, so uh, there's a lot of shakeup potentially coming. Uh, and that's not even going into who would be in con control of the major committees if uh, party control were to flip in the House. But those are some of the individual races that I'm watching on election night to see uh, kind of what this next makeup of the 118th Congress is going to look like. There's a lot of factors to take into consideration, um, you know, to look at something that would be beneficial for agriculture and hopefully building relationships um, with people, as you say, who don't come from agriculture, but could be supportive and friendly to ag. Um, so kudos to you for laying that out. That's, you did a very nice job and it was, it, it's an impressive litany. Um, I, I guess I'm curious now, you say that you do do some education um, of members of Congress once they're elected to try and help them understand, you know, why a farm bill is necessary, why we have the nutrition titles coupled with um, the production stuff. I guess, what kind of education do you do? And do you find that challenging with members who don't come from at, at it from, from our angle? Yeah, I would say that the members of Congress and the congressional candidates that make the mainstream news, you know, they're on primetime lineups on any network news station, they're going to be your firebrands, right? They're, they're, you know, looking to run for higher office later on down the road. They're only reading from the party talking points. That is a very slim margin traditionally of a new class of Congress, congressmen, right? So you've got a, a freshman class that'll come in. The vast majority of them, you know, were started out running for school board or county supervisor or county commission or something like that. And they uh, came to DC to represent their, their district and represent the American people at, at a weird little cross section where their district may fall. And so when it comes to education, a lot of it is relationship building, right? Just saying, hey, I'm Tanner. And if you have any cattle related questions, uh, I am here to answer them. Uh, here's my card. And oftentimes the first time they have a cattle question, uh, they call somebody from NCBA because we were there in their offices uh, to, to make that introduction and, and make friends. My boss always says in this office, we're in the friend making business. And that's the, I, I think that that's just it's simple. It's somewhat cliche. But I think that it really at the root of what we're doing here is, is very true. Building a relationship where they can trust us to tell them, here's the way we see it nationally. Here's what your cattle producing constituents may be viewing it based on what we're hearing from our state affiliates or our local county affiliates. And here's our recommendation for how you should proceed from here. Um, I think that building a relationship with the staff is equally as important as well, because these members get asked to vote every single day on issues not just related to agriculture, but on national security, defense, military, banking, health, education, labor. I mean, they, they have to know a lot about a lot of things. So those staff members are a little bit more in the weeds on specific policy issues. And building that trust and building that relationship with those individuals is critical for our mission at NCBA to try and make sure that we're giving them the best information possible. We're, we're helping them to understand how impactful their vote is. I think one of my favorite interactions, I had a, a, a member of Congress who was a freshman last Congress. We had a meeting with him shortly after he got sworn in and he represents Long Island in New York. And he came in and he said, I have zero cattle producing 
constituents, but I have a lot of beef loving constituents. And that's, that's the other hook that we have too, right? There is not a single congressional district in America where beef is not sold and enjoyed by a lot of people. Uh, we've not seen demand like we're seeing right now in many years, maybe not even ever. Uh, our demand story is really strong right now. Uh, and I think that also is very beneficial for us in making friends uh, in those places where perhaps traditionally we wouldn't based on the fact that, you know, they represent a 100% urban district. Uh, and that's, that's something that we, uh, we lean into as well to try and reiterate the importance of what we're talking about. Uh, and that has proven to be pretty successful and hopefully will continue to. <laughs> well, I think that's a great reminder for us too, is that there's, there's this huge separation we see now between agriculture and the urban, but the urban people can't eat without the agriculture. And so, you know, getting back to tying that together and reminding them like, you don't have to be an expert, we're the expert, but if we're not the expert, or we're not at the table, then you don't eat, you know, and it's not being so, maybe it's not being that cut and dry, but just reminding them, you know, of, of their options and where it comes from is I think an important job that sometimes when we're on the farms and ranches, we, we just don't even think about. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I spend quite a bit of time in this job traveling to uh, our state affiliates meetings, and I'm on ranch quite a bit, uh, which I'm very blessed for. Um, and in those conversations, I often get asked about the members of the Agriculture Committee in either the House or the Senate. And we do, for sure, interact mostly with members of the Ag Committee. But if you think about issues like hours of service and electronic logging devices for livestock haulers, which is a big deal in our universe, that's the Transportation and Infrastructure Committee. Uh, if you think about tax issues, which are huge for us, especially in light of some of these uh, climate provisions that Congress has been mulling over and paying for them with changes to the tax code, the Ways and Means Committee is very important to us. Uh, cryptocurrencies and who's going to regulate cryptocurrencies. Right now, it's the Ad Committee uh, because they have jurisdiction over the CFTC. But there's been a lot of conversation about whether or not that belongs at the SEC. And that brings the Financial Services Committee in. Immigration is huge for us. So that's the, the Department of Labor and Health and Human Services. I mean, we are all over the map in terms of issues that directly impact cattle producers. And because of that, we do have to constantly be engaging with people and making friends with people who might not have that direct experience with production ag. And I think, you know, a, a lot of people, when they come to Congress, they know that there's a whole supply chain and a whole production process uh, that they may not be familiar with. But I've never once explained our supply chain to an urban member of Congress or their staff without them saying, oh, that's interesting. I didn't know this element, right? They, they know there's something there and they might be pretty well versed in it, uh, but there's always going to be something. And that also, that also applies to people with 100% rural districts. There are some districts in this, in this country that are entirely rural. Cattle is a huge economic uh, contributor in those areas of the country. And I still get uh, some of that as well. I mean, shoot, I, I grew up in, in the cattle industry uh, and there's hardly a week that goes by that I don't learn something myself. So I think just staying humble about it and, and making sure that they know first and foremost that you've got their back, you're there to be their friend and help them make the best decision for their constituents. If they trust you, then you can have a much more open and honest dialogue when it comes time to talk the tough issues like farm bill, like markets policy, like climate issues.
Since 1922, Mystic Lubricants has been providing superior performance and protection for farmers who demand the most out of their equipment. Today, Mystic continues to develop products in real-world conditions that are specially formulated to meet the unique demands of your specialized machines. They provide advanced protection for engine longevity and are the choice of people who make a living working the land. Learn more about Mystic products at mysticlubes.com. That's M-Y-S-T-I-K lubes.com. I think that's, like Val said, it's such a great reminder, but also like it's a really good thing you know, to hear that there's organizations like NCBA and people like you out there on the Hill having these conversations with people who, as you say, maybe don't understand, you know, the com the complexity of the ag supply chain um, or the complexity of the issues that touch agriculture and that fan out from within our industry. And then also, I think it's such a great reminder, um, especially for our audience, who is mostly made up of, of ag producers, um, you know, reminding them of what goes into building those relationships on the hill um, and, you know, remembering that it's not just about the corn that gets trucked in and the water that comes up from the ground and, you know, the, the inputs that go into, into cattle. Like there, there are a lot of other moving parts that we need to recognize and respect the way that they move. Um, so that this whole big mess can try to work. <laughs> yeah. No, you're you're 100% right. Those on-hill relationships are very important. But I would say equally as important are those off-hill relationships as well, right? Because, you know, agriculture is still, fortunately, a, a very large part of the U.S. economy. It's a very large part of the voting base uh, for Congress or, or the United States. But I, I would also say that that influence is shrinking a little bit from where it was just based on demographic trends, based off of, you know, developments in the technology sector, right? I mean, economically, demographically, you know, uh, the influence isn't quite what it used to be. It's still very strong, but that, that dwindling influence, I think, can sometimes make it that much more important that all of us in agriculture stand together. And I'll give you a great example of that. We're working on an issue right now. Uh, I think I mentioned earlier this rulemaking under the Packers and Stockyards Act that USDA is rolling out. Uh, they didn't give the industry a very long time to comment on that rule. And so we've requested an extension of that comment period. And we're currently looking, uh, we've asked our partners and our friends on Capitol Hill, excuse me, to weigh in on that as well and, and ask Secretary Vilsack to extend that comment period. And we have been successful in, in doing that because we work together. We have a coalition in Washington called the Barnyard. And if it clucks, oinks, or moos, uh, it's usually represented by a trade association that sits on that Barnyard Coalition. Uh, so the National Chicken Council, Turkey Federation, Pork Producers Council, Farm Bureau, we get together and we you know, talk about those areas where we can find agreement. We, we, we break up based upon where we have strong relationships and, and really target our advocacy to try and maximize the impact of what it is we're trying to advocate for that day. Uh, and those off-hill relationships prove to be just as valuable as those on-hill because, uh, you know, we're pretty strong when we stand independently because agriculture is important. There will never be a time in all of the future of human existence where agriculture is not necessary. Um, but our ability to have an impact in this town is much higher when we can stand together. Uh, and I'm so uh, trying to make sure we have those relationships off-hill as well as, as equally as important. No, and I think just the reminder again and again that relationships are important because it's like, who do you, 
who do you call when your back's against the wall for an answer? Because those guys just, just following mom around the state Capitol, like I can't even imagine it at the national level, what it's like about how many issues she deals with on a day-to-day basis and the fact she can pull from her brain. But there's times that there is something she doesn't know and she knows the people she can trust in her circle of, of network to call. And it's, it's having you at the table and it's having those prior relationships. Cause when it's, when they're on the floor and somebody's dropped a random fact that may or may not be true, and they've got to contradict it now, they need those relationships now. <laughs> and to be able to have it in place and response is, is super important. No, a- absolutely. And you know, Congress does get a bad rap. And I will say 98% of the time they deserve it. Uh, but I, I will say, I, I think- A 13% I, approval rating. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I do think the overwhelming majority of members of Congress, House and Senate, are there for the right reasons. They want to do the right thing. But sometimes through all the noise, through all the punditry, through all of the just, ah, that seems to be gripping America right now, trying to find out what the right thing to do is oftentimes tricky. And so, like you said, right, having that relationship where we can have some trust back and forth uh, is, is, is vital to, to doing that, right? I mean, oftentimes I will go into a meeting, uh, the markets issue is a great example of that, right? I'll go into some of these meetings and I'll say, look, here's what NCBA's perspective is. Our state affiliate is, is a little bit in a little bit of a different place and here's where they are. And you have to make a decision based on these facts that I'm presenting you of which way you're going to fall, but I'm not going to leave them high and dry and, and say, you know, look, here's what we think. And all of the cattle industry stands together and then they take a vote. And then there's a nasty press release that goes out from their state association or whatever the case may be. That's not conducive to being in the friend making business. Uh, you know, you have to be open and, and honest. And I think that that's something that we try really hard to do in our office and, I think it's one of the reasons why agriculture broadly uh, is is so uh, so widely regarded uh, for our lobbying efforts. I turning a little bit from those um, from the relationship discussions we're having. You mentioned climate change as a huge huge driver of the um, Biden administration's agenda. And, you know, it would seem to those of us in agriculture that we are the low hanging fruit to get picked on. Um, You know, we're told that we have to drop our emissions. We need to be net zero by 2030, 2050. um, And that we're the ones who need to drastically cut, you know, our inputs and our fossil fuel use and, you know, the whole nine yards. We're all familiar with the story. So I guess what my question would be right now is how, how can agriculture, combat is not the word because that sounds very combative, <laughs> but that's, you know, that's something that needs to be addressed within our industry and when we're facing outwards. And how, how do we go about that doing, doing that with grace and with knowledge and with, with success is the key thing I'm looking for there because we can yap at ourselves all day long and we're really good at it. Um, but that doesn't get the needle moved you know, very hard um, in one direction or the other. And it's just frustrating because you see other sectors, especially like transportation, um, that have a much larger footprint than we do, but, you know, have a lot more money in terms of, of lobbying power and that sort of stuff uh, to be able to steer the narrative away from them. Well, first and foremost, from the DC 
as a representative of cattle producers in Washington, D.C., I think the way we go about doing that in our office is we just present the facts, right? The EPA under the Obama administration, uh, under the Trump administration, and now under the Biden administration has said in their own findings through three, two different party controls that the uh, contribution of cattle to greenhouse gas emissions has hovered between two and 3% for the last however many years, uh, which is negligible when you consider, like you said, transportation uh, or technology or things like that, other sectors. So we present the facts, right? And show that we are uh, a, a, a very small blip on the radar. If you zoom out and look at global emissions, it is a much higher footprint because production practices in other countries are not as efficient. They are uh, not as climate friendly or eco-friendly. And as a result, some of those global numbers can be inflated a little bit, um, but we're looking at domestic policy here. We have a whole team that looks at international issues, particularly through the lens of climate. But most of what I interact with on a day-to-day -day basis is, is domestic. So we just tell the story, right? Uh, so on, on the one hand, the, the facts are really good in our favor right now. We've got a really good story to tell. In addition to, you know, grazing uh, in certain, when grazing done right can actually be a net ecosystem benefit. It provides a crucial service in terms of fuels reduction, in terms of uh, aeration of the soil, in terms of carbon capture and sequestration in some cases. Um, but in addition to that, we're also taking land that can't be cultivated and can't be farmed and making that useful in food production, right? Uh, without livestock, and particularly cattle, and I might be biased, but without cattle, you have whole wide ranges uh, that, you know, produce grasses that are undigestible and unusable to humans from a nutritional perspective, and you're making a nutritional product come from that and helping to uh, feed the world, uh, for lack of a better sense. But I'm going to latch on to that feed the world talk for just a moment, because uh, taking off my advocate hat and putting on my you know, I come from production hat. I do think sometimes we pat ourselves on the back a little bit too much on the feed the world <laughs> thing. And, you know, sometimes we get caught in our own uh, self-glorification. It's true. We are doing a good thing. Uh, but that's not to say that somebody else isn't doing it better. So through that lens, I always like to say, you know, ask yourself, is there something that you could be doing better? Is there a way that you can improve? Can you reduce uh, your, your inputs? Uh, can you, you know, have, find some ways to be a better net benefit and leave the land in a better condition than you found it, which is something that those of us in production ag have been, had that drilled into our heads since about the time we learned the English language. So, <laughs> I mean, that's, that's, that's something I always say is like, take a step back and look at it. And then if there are ways that you can improve, why haven't you done it? Most of the time it comes down to it is costly to do so. And already in agriculture, we operate on razor thin margins. So that's where I think there's an opportunity for folks in Washington, D.C. who want to see, you know, some more aggressive action taken on climate, but they just don't know how to go about doing it. That's where you can come in and say, look, we are already doing really, really well. If you want us to improve, here's some ways we can go about improving. But A, don't mandate it. And B, make it incentive based, right? Because at the end of the day, you know, you can have, you know, the most net zero happy butterfly unicorn sanctuary in all of the land. But if it's not profitable for you and your family, that's going to be a very short lived investment. And as we know, anytime we deal with climate, we are talking about 
orders of magnitude longer than the human lifespan. So if we really want to talk about sustainability, one of the legs of that stool has to be economic sustainability as well. So yes, we will continue to fight fiction with facts and, and try and uh, make that known in Washington. I think we've seen a, a pretty good movement in that direction. On the federal land side, you know, this administration is very focused on climate. They're very aggressive on climate. We disagree with some of the ways they go about it, but in other ways we agree with it because they recognize the role of working lands as a climate solution in some of these areas. There could be broader recognition of it in other areas, but you know, that, that's a win in and of itself. So to the extent that sometimes we can, for lack of a better word, get out of our own way, I think that can make that argument just that much more powerful and that much stronger when I go in and talk to offices and say, look, we're doing great and we're always looking for ways to improve. And who knows, maybe some of those things are very simple changes that might actually end up saving money too. Well, and I think it's going back to your comment on humbling ourselves to be able to look and see what we're actually doing and having those conversations to improve um, um, is very important. Tanner, we can't thank you enough for joining us today. Um, what are your parting thoughts, words of wisdom um, on anything we've talked about or going into November 8th? And we also want to know how you keep election night, how you stay entertained on election night. Do you have a drinking game? Do you play crossword puzzles? What do you do to stay entertained? <laughs> oh, my word. Okay. So parting words of wisdom is vote. Vote, vote, vote. My granddaddy always said, if you don't vote, you can't complain. And I very much agree with that. Um, we're, we're often the first ones to complain, but if you don't vote, you know, it, there's, there's not a lot of ground to that. I think everybody knows that, but um, make a plan to vote. If you're not gonna be able to make it to the polls, early vote, absentee vote, whatever it does, make your voice heard. That is the number one advice I give people. And you would be surprised, it seems like, you know, obviously, duh, I'm going to vote, but there are a lot of people that just, oh, shoot, it's it's the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November, and I forgot to make it to the polls. Don't forget to make it to the polls. Go vote. In terms of what I do on election night, uh, I am a little embarrassed to admit this, uh, and my <laughs> wife would probably be embarrassed to hear me admit this, but I'm a mega nerd when it comes to politics. I think anybody that knows me or has for a long time knows that. I actually print off a you know very large poster board with all of the congressional districts highlighted on a map and i start tracking that earlier in the night with different colored highlighters and uh, start making notes uh and i i keep track of the margins of victory i keep track of you know what time of day the race was called i keep track of weather conditions because that actually influences uh voting outcomes in some cases um, so I'm all over the map. I am watching usually uh, MSNBC because uh, I am on team Steve Kornacki in terms of uh, election night coverage. Uh, there are a lot of people in this town that would disagree with me. I love Steve Kornacki. I'm constantly on my phone refreshing Dave Wasserman's Twitter feed. And I'm also on my computer uh, ingesting all of the Politico New York Times and 538 predictions and uh, real time elections results. And then also I have a separate page open to the Idaho Secretary of State's office to keep track of all the legislation legislative races of all the people that I know from back home. Well, and hopefully wow. uh, <laughs> it won't take as long as they did last year to get in. Oh. Yes, uh, the, that is the tough thing about living on Eastern time on election night, because, you know, a lot of those races I care most about, uh, the polls don't close until about, oh, I don't know, like midnight here in some cases. 
Uh, and so that it, it makes for a late night, but usually there's a team of us from the office who get together uh, over, over, over some drinks, over some good beef, and we post up and watch the results come in until the wee hours of the morning. <laughs> well, that's awesome. And then the last thing I ha always have to ask you to do is auction something off, Tanner, because I think it's just, you're so great at it and you're very entertaining. So. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I went, I still go home every year to sell the, the Twin Falls County Fair. Uh, I am fortunate enough to get to do that every year. And if the grand champion steer comes in, I probably start him at about, oh, say five dollar bid. I don't know, five dollar bid, quarter bid, quarter, quarter, where? And a half, half, 50, 75. If I have 75 and now six, 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 that'd have been a quarter, quarter, half, that'd have been in 75. Sold at six dollars and 50 cents, which is way under what I actually sold him for. I think it went for like eight and a quarter this year, maybe, but. That's pretty good prices for, for Twin Falls County. Hey, they, they were out there to support those kids and by golly, they got it done. <laughs> well, that's yeah, awesome. That's really cool to see. Well, thank you again, Tanner, for joining us. Um, and thank you listeners for tuning into this week's episode of the Millennial Ag Podcast. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. And you can also email us at talktous at millennialag.com. Um, until next week, we are Millennial Ag. Mm -hmm.